We fear the unknown, fear of failure, what happens if, fear of ridicule, what will they say, uncertainty, which direction, success, what happens. We fear death, but live like we're immortal. Up to 76% of people lay on their deathbeds with the exact same regret that they lived in mediocrity. They let fear and uncertainty and things stop them from doing more meaningful purpose-driven work. Welcome, Corey Wilkes, to the podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. So Corey is a clinical psychologist, executive coach, and founder of International Life Design. To start, what was the impulse to change your life up recently? You went from being a clinical psychologist into an executive coach. I could see a lot of parallels between those worlds, but there must have been an impetus to switch careers. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't totally voluntary initially. <clears throat> Long story short, so a lot of my, like when I was a therapist, I mostly worked in integrated primary care, which just means I worked at like a medical clinic. Um, and I did a lot of addiction treatment, right? So like heroin, meth, all these other things. And toward the end of 2020, I had negotiated a remote position, right? Cause this is like peak COVID, all that other shit. And <clears throat> I, was about two or three months into the new contract and it was going really well. I could work in pajamas, you know, patients didn't have to go to the clinic. A lot of them had a lot of like health issues. <clears throat> so they were excited to not have to like drive to the clinic and like sit in the waiting room, all that other stuff. And around October, November, 2020, I got an email that said, Hey, you are fired because we are moving away from the, a telehealth model, right? And we're trying to get everybody back into the clinics, no more remote telehealth. From where my position was all telehealth, I, there wasn't an option for me to just come back. Um, and the way therapy licensure works, it's super backward. I can be anywhere in the world. And you, but you as my patient have to physically be in the state I'm licensed in during that call, right? You don't have to be a resident. You just have to physically have your two feet on that piece of dirt for this phone call <clears throat> or zoom call or whatever. Well, I was licensed in West Virginia and living in Kentucky. I couldn't find another remote job out of West Virginia. I wasn't willing to move back. And in order for me to get licensed to practice therapy in Kentucky would have taken four to six months just because of, of how convoluted the licensure process is. <clears throat> like you have to go up in front of the board and the board only meets once every other month. And if they're already booked out, you have to wait four to six months to even be able to see them. It's completely ridiculous. So I the have bureaucracy of healthcare do so much shit, right? Yeah. Especially for America. Yeah. Cause insurance companies rule all. So basically I had like three paychecks worth of runway and like 30 days notice to figure out my life. Cause I was like, I've spent the last 12, 15 years to become a therapist. And now all of a sudden I can't do therapy anymore. Right? Like this, I'm, I'm kind of fucked, you know, career wise. So, and that's quite a limited deadline. Three, did you say it was three months? No, no, no. So I got 30 days notice. I had three paychecks worth of runway. Like that was it. Like, Oh damn. They were like, Hey, by December 4th, you will no longer be employed. <clears throat> So, and I got that like right That's before my birthday email to wake up to. Yeah. So like I got that email like right before my birthday in November. So it was like, happy birthday to me. Merry Christmas. Like I'm just fucked through the holidays. So, <laughs> um, 
but honestly, man, like I, I was pretty burnt out and, and you hear this a lot from, from people in, in the medical field and the healthcare field. And it's got, it's only gotten worse as far as everybody's just burning out because of COVID and just all the, the, everybody's overworked or underpaid and also there's you know, all those other issues. So I was pretty well burnt out before just because of the nature of the type of work that I was doing. So this was kind of the kick in the ass I needed to, to really pivot hard into something that I found a lot more fulfilling, right? Like I love doing therapy. It's super fun to do. <clears throat> it's just really easy to burn out because of all the, is that because so many people are just dumping on like their emotional trauma and their problems and, you know, it's all of the negative side of their, like nobody goes to therapy because they have a great day every day. Like I wake up, I'm just so excited. Yeah. So very few yeah. people go to therapy for that, right? Like I primarily worked in rural Appalachia, right? So a lot of poverty, a lot of low education, just a lot of what we call comorbidities. So a lot of like other health issues that, that kind of go into it. Um, a lot of barriers to treatments, hard for people to afford it, hard for people to get to their appointment, everything. Um, now, if, if you're in like some super wealthy area where everybody can can pay cash, sure, people come to you and be like, hey, my day was great. You know, I just wanted to check in. That happens, but very, very not often. Um, yes, there's a lot of what, you know, what they call like vicarious trauma almost, where from where you experience secondhand everybody else's traumas that can really emotionally weigh you down. Cause yeah, man, like you, you're going in the trenches with people, right? Like when somebody goes through like really fucked up shit, they go to you <clears throat> for help to work through it. So you have to be in that with them. And if you have six, eight, 10 patients or clients in a day, you're going back to back to back to back. And like, you don't yeah. have a lot of time to really recover before you have to put your game face on to go right back into the next session. Um, so that can be, can really weigh on you. Um, the, the type of work I was doing, like I so said, at this point was primarily addiction treatment. So, or substance use disorder treatment, whatever you want to call it. And the program was voluntary, right? We didn't do any like court mandated stuff cause it doesn't work particularly well. Um, people and have to be ready and willing to change pretty much. And the issue was we, we did what's called a medication assisted treatment program, basically meaning if you're hooked on heroin or something, we'll give you a pill that helps reduce the withdrawal symptoms and just kind of helps you function. Right. Um, similar is the metaphor they use is like, you know, if you're diabetic, you typically are on some sort of insulin, you know, prescription or something to just help you function. It's a similar thing. Um, so the program was voluntary in order to get your medication, but in order to get the meds, you were required to go to therapy. So a lot of the people that I saw wouldn't have been there if it wasn't required. Right. Are these like psych are these like antidepressants or uh, amphetamines or like what kind of sleeping aids? What kind of medicines are people looking for to yeah. help with their lives? So this, pro I mean, well, that's a complicated question. So <clears throat> a medication assisted treatment program, primarily a lot of them will prescribe either they're called like opioid agonists or partial agonists. All that basically means is. If you're, if you're hooked on some sort of opioid like heroin or pain pills, things like that, like Oxycontin, Codone, all those other things. Um, long story short, the way the drug interacts with your brain, the chemical, right, which is like my fist, binds fully with a receptor site, right, on your brain. 
So that's a, a full agonist fully binds. Okay. Uh, a receptor is a, a neuron. It's attached to a neuron. It's like how, can you explain that more? It's like a lock and a key, right? Like the, the, the key is, is like the, the chemical itself and then it binds or it, it clicks into the, the lock itself okay which is the, so there's the, like maybe even a physical shape to this chemical yes or there are there are there are, there are okay, literally okay. physical shapes to it. like this isn't even like a, a metaphor like they they bind they and and different neurochemicals different drugs different you know things like that bind to different receptor sites okay <clears throat> i can't go too much more in depth with that purely because i'm not a neuro guy right like i don't i'm not a neuropsychologist that's really However, interesting yeah yeah um but you can google it um so the issue is like if you take something like a pain pill or or heroin or something, the it, from where it's a full agonist, all that means is the essentially the more you take, the more you you feel it, sort of. Okay, um, this is a, a very oversimplification. So, and that's where you get a lot of tolerance, and then when you quit taking it, you get really bad withdrawal symptoms, right? So a lot of people who go through like opioid withdrawal describe it as like the flu times like a hundred. Okay. So imagine how bad you felt at, at, in the worst flu you've ever had in your life and multiply that by 10, 20, a hundred. Okay. That's what a lot of people who are addicted to opioids and things, that's how that a lot of them wake up, right? Cause you go to sleep and then over the course of the night, you, you know, you metabolize it. So you wake up in withdrawal. Okay. Wow. <clears throat> So it isn't that they're trying to get high. They're, they're trying to not be sick anymore after a certain point, right? That's why they continue to use because when they don't use, they are incredibly sick, can't really function. Okay. So they're what just man, trying to get to a baseline. They're just trying to function, man. Like this yeah. is bullshit. Like, Oh, you just keep trying to get high. They're, they're fucking not. Absolutely not. Right. So what these medication assisted treatment programs do is they prescribe different medications such as like Suboxone or buprenorphine is one you hear a lot about, um, or methadone. If you've heard of like a methadone clinic. So methadone is a full agonist. So it fully binds, right? But you're usually given it in like a controlled environment. So you can't necessarily abuse it, right? Or take it, you know, off script. And then something like Suboxone or buprenorphine is like the, the generic name for it. Um, it is what's called a partial agonist. So what that does is that it halfway binds to that receptor site, but not fully. And really all that really does is it keeps you from like, if you, whether you take like 16 milligrams or 30 milligrams, you, you hit a ceiling after around 16 or 18. So the more you take, you don't feel it anymore necessarily. Right. So you can function on a lower dose and all it really does is it helps you avoid going into withdrawal. So it activates that site enough to keep you from going into withdrawal, but not enough necessarily to where you can get like a, like a euphoric effect from it. Okay. And again, this is a very vastly oversimplified version of all this, but that's what I did. Right. And that is the function. A lot of these, these treatment programs do. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, absence only, you know, that that's a separate, you know, model. There are a, a lot of different, you know, recovery models, right? This is just specifically the kind that I worked in. Um, and I really liked it. It was super cool. Um, I did really well because I don't look like a typical psychologist. Like I'm covered in tattoos. I cuss a lot and I have an issue with authority. 
So I got along really well with the other patients who were just, who, you know, half the time people thought I was a patient because I look like a lot <laughs> of the patients, right? Um, so it was really easy to build rapport with people and, and gain that trust. Um, but like I said, I was burnt out. Um, and another big reason for that burnout was with, with therapy, especially in America with American insurance companies, insurance rules all. So with therapy, your job is to take somebody from dysfunctioning to functioning, right? To take somebody who is having severe panic attacks anytime they go to Walmart to then help them learn enough relaxation skills and enough, you know, whatever cognitive behavioral techniques so that they can go to Walmart and no longer have a panic attack. Or if they do have one, they can relatively manage it, right? That's kind of how therapy works in, in, in general. Right. So all I was ever allowed to do was to help people function because as soon as they were considered what's called subclinical, which just means you, you don't warrant a diagnosis anymore. Right. So you may still be like kind of sad or kind of, you know, just lethargic, but because you no longer warrant a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, single episode mild or some bullshit like that, insurance is like, nah, you're good. Fuck you. We're not going to pay for you to go to therapy anymore. Right. So, and then all that work and all that momentum that you've established with that person, did you feel you're just like kind of like, kinda, I, I, right. yeah, you're just like, I hope you can manage Bye. right? Like it's, it's super shitty. Um, no, like obviously like I could lie to insurance companies and commit like insurance fraud and be like, yeah, no, sure. They still have this diagnosis. Right. But then I'm risking <laughs> getting sued and in prison and shit. So if you're ethical, you don't, and then you just, you lose, right? So now your ethics and your morals are, are in conflict because morally this person needs more help yes. and I want to help them, but ethically, legally, I'm not allowed to, right? And it also <clears throat> creates an interesting conflict where a lot of times you see people go to the same therapist for 10 years. Like, okay, well, if you've had this problem for 10 years, whatever you've been doing isn't the solution. And it makes you wonder, maybe some therapists or psychologists or whatever are uh, incentivized to not like graduate people out of their program or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's really scary when you create financial incentives with healthcare. But yeah, I, I was so I was primarily trained in just it's called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. It is like the gold standard of, of therapy, right? Um, and I'm technically more of what you would call like eclectic or, or integrative. It just means I, I, I pick and choose. I kind of cherry pick from different ways of, of doing therapy or just different orientations, but it's primarily CBT and CBT is mostly focused around how can we help the most people in the shortest amount of time possible. And there are pros and cons to that, right? Like CBT isn't necessarily like something you do for three, six, you know, 12 months at a time, but you tend to get shit done in a relatively short period of time that is very evidence-based versus something like, you know, psychoanalysis, especially old school psychoanalysis, where it was like, come to therapy for three fucking years. We'll see what happens. Right. 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 <laughs> like, yeah. It's they're, I'm they're, afraid to go into the store, practice it. Can you go close to the store? Can you take 10 steps in the store? Can you go get some orange juice? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, every type of therapy works for different people, but Yes, some some people are some therapists are ineffective to help people. So you have to be super careful with the therapist you pick, right? But so so here, here here's my other issue with that man. So I could help a lot of people 
but insurance wouldn't allow me to. And then my license wouldn't allow me to either, right? If you're in Florida, I can't see you. Or if I saw you in West Virginia, because I had this happen, and you took a trip to Florida and you wanted to schedule a telehealth call, even though you were an existing patient for me, because you're on vacation and you needed help, I'm not allowed to help you. Right. That is so, so ridiculous. It's just it's too much. Dude, yeah. it's just and too now, much. Right? And now you've escaped into the world of executive coaching, which does seem like such a natural bridge to continue. Uh, you know, you're trying to help people. It seems like that is your calling or your purpose. From what I've read from your uh, articles and your YouTube videos, you, you have a lot of really good ideas of how to uh, motivate people and try to create a really uh, clear perspective. Can we talk about the idea of Memento Mori? I really like that sure. idea. Sure. What do you want to talk about with it? Well, what does it mean and why is it important? So Memento Mori comes from Stoicism, right? Stoic philosophy. And basically just means remember death or remember, remember you will die, right? And it isn't meant to be like depressing or anything. It's more so meant as a way to remind you to use your mortality to live fully, right? Because think about it this way. If you have like two cartons of milk in your fridge, right? One expires in two days, one expires in two weeks. Which one are you going to drink first, right? You're going to drink the one that expires sooner, right? Like that deadline put, puts a limit on it. Because you recognize that after that two days are up, that milk is expired along with any, you know, quote unquote, potential it may have had. So remembering that everything ends, learning to appreciate what you have while you have it and try to accomplish what you can while you can. That's sort of, you know, my take on, on why Memento Mori is so powerful, right? Because, you know, it's this whole idea of like, we fear death, but live like we're immortal. Yes. Right. We avoid thinking about death yet spend every day procrastinating and putting shit off as if we're never going to die. Right. And that causes a, a lot of issues. Um, one of the, I'm not a big like academic or like quoting studies kind of guy, but one of the, the stat statistics that really sticks with me is uh, Cornell university did this study <clears throat> and they found that up to 76% of people, they lay on their deathbeds with the exact same regret which is essentially that they lived in mediocrity. They let fear and, and, and un uncertainty and things stop them from doing more meaningful purpose-driven work that fulfilled them. And then they got to the end of life and they're just like, fuck, I wish I would have taken more chances. I wish I would have been more authentic to myself and done what resonated with me rather than just kind of, you know, going along with whatever everybody else was doing. What do you think holds people back more in that regard? Do you think it's fear or laziness? So I think laziness is a symptom of fear in general, right? So one of the, and I've written about this, but one of the, the concepts that I talk a lot about is the four horsemen of fear. Okay. And what I've observed, you know, in all the years of doing therapy and coaching, and then, you know, just in life, the majority of, of limiting beliefs and fears that people have fall into one of four kind of buckets. <clears throat> so this is going to be fear of failure, right? Like this is one everybody's super familiar with, right? Like what if I don't succeed? What if I'm not good enough? That kind of thing. 
There's fear of ridicule, right? Which is, well, what will my friends and family say if I do X, right? This is super common in like, you know, the creator economy and things when people are wanting to start a website or start writing or start a newsletter or start on YouTube. They're just like, oh, well, what will my friends think? Yep. Yeah. Like that, that's that fear of ridicule, the fear of criticism stops so many people. There's fear of uncertainty, which is, I don't know which direction to go. Right. So like in, in, with writing, like, oh, well, which editing software should I use? Which word processor should I use? Right. Should I use Grammarly or Hemingway or Scrivener or whatever? Right. With YouTube, what microphone do I need? What about all the cameras? What about all the lenses and shit? And this leads to like this whole paralysis by analysis, right? You're so worried about making the wrong decision that you make no decision whatsoever. Right. You just get wrapped up in all these different rabbit holes and you end up doing nothing. Yep. And then the fourth one is fear of success, which sounds weird because you're like, why would I be afraid to get the thing that I claim to want? But a lot of people, <clears throat> either they believe they don't deserve success or they believe that success will change them negatively. They think that, well, if I succeed, then I'll lose my motivation, right? Like I'll, I'll or I'll plateau, right? Or if I achieve power, then I will become corrupted by power and influence or something like this, right? Like these are real fears that a lot of people have. And because they have that fear, they, they take on some sort of self-sabotaging behavior, right? So like you said, laziness, we'll do a separate one of like procrastination, which they, they're, they're pretty related, mm -hmm. but it isn't that you struggle with procrastination necessarily so much as you're fucking afraid right? Because procrastination is serving a very specific function. It is helping you avoid something, something that on some level you are afraid of it again, in general, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's somebody who's gonna be like, Oh, I'm the exception. But for most people, mm -hmm. you because here's the deal. When there's a deadline, you get shit done, mm -hmm. right? That every procrastinator will tell you the exact same thing. Well, once there's a time constraint, I get shit done. Okay, then procrastination isn't your issue, right? Or, well, when I have to do something for work, I get it done, but then my own stuff, I procrastinate. Corey, what, what, why can't I apply my same work ethic to my personal projects and things that I actually really care about? That's a very good well, question. <laughs> because at work, you're a drone. You're not emotionally invested in your work. And you have all of if this social pressure and you have all of this kind of writing on uh, your work. Like you're accountable to other people. With yourself, you're only accountable to you. Potentially, right? But you can make yourself accountable to other people by yeah. having like a mastermind group or building in public, right? So that's part of it, right? These, these external things. But also, if you're not emotionally invested, fear doesn't come up, Right. Mm -hmm. It's only when we work on things that we actually care about and are deeply emotionally invested in, that is when the stakes are a lot higher. So, so fear is actually is fear a really out. good signal that what you're doing is in the right direction. If you're afraid of Potentially. it, yeah, that could be at least something to explore, but maybe something to practice and maybe something that yeah. would be an expression of your interests. Exactly. And, and here, here's the big thing with, with fear that a lot of people, that trips up a lot of people. Fear and danger are separate things, right? What I mean by that is, you know, back in, you know, caveman days, fear signaled that you were in danger, right? Fear is an emotional response that says, oh shit, 
you know, there's a fucking tiger in the bushes or there's, you know, a bear coming after me. Right. And we experience this fear. So fear was adaptive because it helped us survive. When you, when you feel fear, when you experience fear, that means danger is near. Right. So right. you need to avoid that danger, right? Fight or flight type stuff. But in modern society, we are rarely actually in danger, right? So, you know, a classic example, like fear of flying. I fucking hate flying. Okay. But then you have all these statistics where like, well, but flying is way safer than driving and you know, you're completely safe and here's how physics works and all this other shit. Right. So even though like I experience fear, that doesn't mean I'm in danger. Right. Think of it like this. If, if you and I were in the same room and I held a gun to your head, would you experience fear? Yes. Most people would. Right. Most people would, right? A couple of people, maybe not, but normal people would, would almost piss themselves if you put a gun to their right. head. But if it was actually a Nerf gun that I had painted to look like a real gun, you, you will experience significant fear, even though you're not in danger. Right. Right. Versus I could be a sniper on a roof and have you in my scope. You could be in hell of fucking danger, but not so be afraid because you don't know about danger. it. Exactly. And that is the thing is just because you, you are experiencing fear doesn't mean you're in danger. The issue that trips people up is anytime we experience fear, we assume it means danger. So then we kick into this fight, flight, all these other self-sabotaging behaviors and things to try to avoid this thing, which again, used to be very adaptive, but in today's society, especially like if I'm trying to like publish an article, mm. it does me very little good to cave to fear of like, oh, well, what will other people think or say, right? Because again, evolutionarily, fear of ridicule is adaptive. What I mean by that is we are social creatures. We need other people to help us survive. Right? That's why like throughout history, ostracism or being shunned by your tribe is a huge, a huge punishment for a lot of people. Totally. Like it, 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 it literally like it hurts us to feel abandoned and isolated. Right. So that makes sense as to why we would be afraid to, to invoke this ridicule or to call this ridicule down on us. Right. But a lot of these people that you're afraid are going to ridicule you aren't your tribe. They're random shit bags and trolls on the internet. Right. 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 So that's the thing is like learning to separate fear from danger so that then you can say, okay, I'm experiencing fear, but I'm not in danger. How can I reel this fear in so that it is no longer holding me back from doing meaningful work. So that is such a good idea. I don't think I've thought of that before that fear is an adaptive trait throughout time and history, but in the modern world, it's become maladaptive like many other things, you know, uh, people have too much of comfort and food and, you know, like, uh, heart disease is, is a, a bigger killer than starvation or whatever. And so, yeah, so the idea is that fear has become maladaptive in the modern world and the way that you can kind of like get yourself out of that loop is to recognize the distance you really are from danger. Like, what are you afraid of? Some trolls online? You know, there is no tiger in the bushes. There is no bear in the woods. Like these are uh, legacy emotions from our, uh, our history. Um, you mentioned the fear of success. I love this Maslow. Abraham Maslow came up with a hierarchy of needs. Um, he says that we fear our, our highest possibilities. We are generally afraid to become that which we glimpse in our most perfect moments under the most 
perfect conditions, under the conditions of greatest courage. And we hear this echoed by philosophers and writers throughout time and history that people are afraid to become what they can be. But you would think that an awareness of death and like even just like reading some of these things would be enough to help people get over that fear. But in, in certain cases, it doesn't seem uh, ameliorative or helpful, I should say, actually um, beneficial. And so what would you say to someone who is struggling uh, most with their fear of success? Well, so part of it would be what specific story are they telling themselves about what success represents to them, right? So, you know, one guy I worked with, he was like, look, man, I've been the underdog my entire life. I'm used to, to having to fight against, you know, the, 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 you know, bigger organizations or bigger people and just being underestimated. So what happens if I actually succeed? Like, what does a dog do when they actually catch a car, right? Like, it's just like, I don't know what to do anymore because my whole life has been aimed at achieving this thing. So I've gotten into the habit of striving, but not arriving. Right. What happens when I arrive? I, I do not have a schema, a mental model for what life looks like after that, right? Because ultimately, man, we fear the unknown, right? Fear of failure. What happens if? Fear of ridicule. What will they say? Uncertainty. Which direction? Success. What happens? We fear what we do not understand. So it's just more of the unknown. Right. It's, it's, it's fear. I'm wondering if there's something common amongst all these fears. I always think that, uh, I love everything you just said, by the way. Um, I always think of like, if what we're really afraid of is just death, like you say you're afraid of other people or how your work is going to be received or, or something. Well, is that because you're going to be ostracized? Why is that scary? Well, because if you're ostracized, are you really going to survive on your own throughout time in history? Yeah, you right. You're uncertain. And so it yeah. makes you wonder, like, how much of this stuff is really fear of death um, versus like, where is the disambiguation between the fear of ridicule and the fear of death? So fear of death is <clears throat> ultimately fear of the unknown, right? Because people who have like deep spiritual beliefs tend to not be afraid of death the same way, right? Like, you know, I, I grew up in like, you know, Southern Baptist ish, you know, upbringing in rural Appalachia. Right. So when, when a family member West died Virginia or oh. yeah, I'm from West Virginia. Um, and the, the thing is, is like when a family member died, yeah, people were sad cause you didn't get to hang out with them anymore. But like everybody was like, yo, you know, they're up with God now. Oh, they're in heaven now. Right. And when you talk to them about their own beliefs, you know, about like their own health issues or, you know, when, you know, when they may pass on, it's just like, I will be in heaven then. They don't fear death in the same way because to them, death isn't an unknown because they know, you know, no one air quotes because they have their own beliefs. They know what happens afterward. And because they know there isn't that same fear, right? Now they may fear because they may have the unknown of like, well, how will my family fare without me? Right? Because that they don't know. But if they truly believe that there is some sort of better version of the afterlife or something, death doesn't hold the same fear for them because they know what happens afterward, right? So again, spiritual beliefs can be super adaptive mm -hmm. in that right. regard, right? So, but you're right. Like ultimately, 
you know, the whole idea of like death and taxes, right? Like these are, you know, the, the inevitables, right? I almost wonder, just going back to what, what you were saying on, um, on that, like, what is the, what is the real driver for fear? I don't know. I don't have a, I don't have a clear, I don't have a clear thought on it. Um, but, uh, going back to, going back to what you're working on now, so you're the founder of uh, Intentional Life Design. And let's say that somebody has conquered their fears enough to like create a goal. I want to run a marathon or start a business or do whatever. Um, how do they know that that goal is like the right goal in this intentional life design? Like, how do you find... Um, what you're supposed to like, how do people find what's important to them in this process of building an intentional life? Yeah. So first off, let me define, you know, how I see an intentional life, right? Maslow would have called it self-actualization. You can talk, you can call it, you know, fulfillment. You can, you know, all these other terms that you hear a lot. Um, I just, when I was coming up with things, you know, a lot of, fake gurus and snake oil salesmen try to, to promise you the world and you'll have a fulfilling life, you know, in these three easy steps right. or something. So I just try to distance myself and kind of put my own take on it, which is an intentional life, right? Like how can you be more intentional with how you live, work and create to do things with purpose, with intention, right? So I actually wouldn't, I would start, I wouldn't start with overcoming your, your fears and your limiting beliefs first. Okay. Because here, here's the framework that I've kind of come up with. And I did this, you know, I do this with one-on-one -on -one coaching clients. And then now I've developed it into like a live course. So that way everybody can kind of go through like as a cohort. So you have a lot of like peers. Is that on CoreyWilks.com or but where do people find that course? At CoreyWilksID.com. Like I'm, I'm CoreyWilksID gotcha. everywhere. My doctorate is, is a PsyD. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I should have introduced you as a so doctor. Twitter website. My bad. That's okay. Nobody does because I don't talk about myself. It's like, hey, I'm Dr. Corey Wills. That's a legit yeah, credential. Um, it's okay. For real. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Like, no one knows what the fuck a PsyD is, but like, no, like, I'm That's a doctor. Cool. Um, but so the, the way the, the process that I've kind of distilled, like, my 15 years of, of psychological, you know, experience into, we start by identifying what is your core value, okay? And I, I start with this because you need a North Star pretty much. Right. And I'm not a huge fan of like, here's, you know, my, my value in these eight different domains of life. So here's my value for fitness and for spirituality and family. Like that's just a lot of shit to keep track of. Or here are 12 company principles. Nobody fucking right. reads that. Like, I'm just, I'm not a yeah. fan. Right. I would much rather distill everything down into a core value. And then you can see how it kind of spreads from there. Right. Of like how this you know, what this looks like in these different domains of life. But at the core, there's probably a singular value, right? So for example, my core value is freedom. Okay. And I'll get to that more here in a second. So once we identify your core value and, and an intentional life is a life that is fully aligned with your core value, right? So for me, an intentional life is where everything fully aligns with freedom in all its iterations. Okay. Freedom to travel, freedom to dress how I want, speak how I want, write what I want, whatever. Once we identify that, we say, okay, what are goals that will act as stepping stones to progressively get you closer to this intentional life? Okay. Because every goal or opportunity has the potential to get you one step closer to or further away from a life aligned with your core value. 
right? So for example, shortly after I lost my therapy job and had started coaching, cause I went through a bunch of like coaching training to become like an official executive coach and shit. I didn't just randomly start calling myself a coach. Shortly after I started coaching, <clears throat> I had, I started getting therapy job offers, right? And one of them was like a six figure therapy job offer, like more than I made at my old job by a little bit. And they were like, Hey, we'll pay you six figures. Just work for us 40, 60 hours a week. Fuck with all this bureaucratic red tape, dress this way, speak this way. Here's how to do paperwork. And I was just like, nah, wait, sorry. Like, were they saying that because... you didn't have to worry about the corporate bureaucracy or <clears throat> okay. No, I, gotcha, did. Gotcha. I did. They were like, we will pay you six figures, mm -hmm. but you have to do all, you have to you jump have to through all these to the system. And I just wasn't down for it. <clears throat> yeah. I just didn't want to because I was like, look, that's 40 to 60 hours that I'm not writing. I'm not creating other content and, and doing way more fulfilling work. But the me. benefits, the so salary, said, no, right. it's so tempting. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and, but that got me further away from my life alone right. with my core value, right? Now, the caveat to this, which I'm sure some people are going to, to pick up on, is like I didn't have a chronic medical condition or, a, or children to support, right? If I had had type 1 diabetes or had like three kids or some shit – I would not have had the leeway that I had to like live on rice and beans for a minute. Right. Um, cause like if you have like type one diabetes, you straight up have to have fucking health insurance, right? Like I could, I was able to, to get by with, you know, being in the middle for a minute. So take everything with a grain of salt for yourself. But I would like to talk about, let's circle side. back to that after you finish this idea. Cause I would like to talk about what people in that situation, maybe they can do some steps, but they, they can, right? It's just, you may not be able right, to do as right. much as soon, right? But hundred percent, there's, there's something there's they can way. do. There's so something. Exactly. So there's core value, then there's goals. And now we say, okay, you know where you want to go, how you're going to get there and, and why you want to go there. So the next question is what could get in your way, right? Because inevitably something is going to come up, right? So now we're going to learn how to identify um, and anticipate obstacles that could come up, right? Something as simple as, oh, well, I, I want to lose weight. I want to, you know, however you define losing weight. Cool. What could get in your way? Well, I eat to cope, right? Like anytime I get stressed, I tend to eat Haagen-Dazs because it makes me feel a little bit better and helps me feel it's in control, right? That's a huge fucking obstacle. Yeah, <laughs> that's a huge fucking obstacle, right? So then we list out all the shit, all the potholes and shit that could get in your way. And then we say, okay, what strengths and resources do you currently have at your disposal that you could leverage to overcome or navigate around? What are obstacles? some examples of those? Right? Yeah. So in that, yeah. So, so again, let's say emotional eating is an obstacle for you to lose weight. Okay, cool. What the fuck else can you do to overcome that? Right? Like, are there other ways for you to work on your stress management? Right? Are there ways for you to find healthy alternatives that still satisfy a sweet tooth? Right? Are there accountability groups or people that you can hang out with where their default behavior is, is your desire? And, and behavior, what's, right? and what's like the root? Maybe, maybe you're sleeping five hours a night. Maybe there's some external stressor that if you were able to figure out what is the root that is causing that emotional thing, um, then you can heal it that way as well. Correct. There are tons of different strategies to overcome those obstacles, right? And that's where the leverage right. kind of comes in, right? Um, or let's say, oh, I really want to, you know, start writing online because that could position me to be an authority in my niche and then I, I could quit my job. Cool. So, you know, starting to write online and putting out content, these are goals, right? What could get in your way? Well, fear of ridicule, right? Fear of what other people are going to say or think about me. Cool. 
What strengths and resources can you leverage to overcome that? Well, I know a couple other writers, you know, I can create a mastermind, just, you know, low key, you know, check in every couple of weeks with them. That can be really good. I can join this writing community. I can do this. I can do that, right? Like I can establish where my goal is. You know, I'm super disciplined. So my goal every week is to write a thousand words for the week and then publish that regardless of how good it is because I'm just trying to get into the consistent habit of doing it. And then over time, my quality will improve. My kids will get better and I will care less and less about judgment from others because I'm going to build up this audience of people where my work resonates with them. I, I may be getting that good feedback. I know that I'm doing good work and kind of, I think fuck that's all such the troubles, a helpful idea, right? by the way, to focus on the practice of things rather than the actual outcome, because if you can make the practice your actual goal, my goal isn't to learn to play the song on the piano. My goal is to improve my practice session while playing piano. And I think that you have to have like different goals or whatever, but if you can uh, put your focus and attention on the practice of things, it makes you less attached to the outcome. And so you're less like, oh, I didn't like learn that in time or perform that in time or whatever. You're like, I'm just trying to get better every day. That's what I'm trying to do. You know, and I do that by focusing on them. Oh, dude, I, was, I, I tweeted about that the other day was like process oriented goals versus yes, outcome yes. focused goals, right? So like you control the process, you don't control the outcome, right? So any, so don't say like, oh, I wanna lose right. weight, say I'm going to eat whole foods every day, right? Totally. Like you control that process. You do not control whether or not you lose weight. You literally fucking don't unless you chop right. off a limb, right? Because you can have a hundred different reasons as to why you can't lose weight at the same pace right. as somebody else. But you do control the process. You control exercising and eating and all this other shit, right? But those, those outcome-focused things are, can be a good metric to gauge how effective your process is. Right. right like, totally. So I'm going to eat whole foods every day, and a metric that I'm going to use to gauge the, the effectiveness of that is yep. if I'm losing weight. Well, if you're eating all whole foods, but you're not losing weight, well, then now you need to reevaluate your process. Maybe you are eating whole foods, but you're eating your yep. macros are fucked up, right? Or you're just eating way too much. Or you need to maybe supplement yep. that with exercise, Right. And then that's how both of those process oriented and outcome focused. Can so you focus on together, the practice, right? but yeah, that's, well, that's like just, I machine. mean, just as a practical tip, you focus on the practice and then you measure the effect, the efficacy of the practice by the outcomes it's able to generate. Exactly. Right. Like, you know, I, I focus on, so I've been doing like a little bit of Olympic lifting lately. Right. So I, I, and I suck at it cause Olympic lifting is a whole different thing, but I'll do like muscle snatches and shit. Right. And my form sucks, but I can gauge how well my form is improving based on how much I can lift, right? My goal isn't to lift more, although- What are the Olympic lifts, by the way? My goal is, it's like uh, the snatch- The snatch is you're starting with a deadlift on the ground and then you're lifting it into the air and pushing it over your head, or what is the snatch? Yes, so so a snatch is like a a wide grip, like super wide grip thing where like it's on the floor and then like you pick oh, it up shit. over your head, right? A clean is where it's on the ground and you pick it up and it's just like kind of like right here at your shoulders. Oh, right? so and cleaning then, is just at your shoulders. Like, Snatching is above your head, pressed all the way up. Yeah, and yeah, and then there's like the, the clean and then a jerk, which is just like a push press. And then I don't remember like what, like, technically uh, the all the olympic lifts i think there's only like three or four but again like i'm not like a professional olympic lifter i'm just doing it for just all around fitness and shit um but i think squat may be another one like technically like you 
You can fucking Google what the Olympic lifts are. Um, but for me, yeah, I want to lift more, but my focus is, is showing up, you know, regularly throughout the week. It's improving yeah. my form. It's practicing with super low weight and slowly going up. Right? I control all of that, right? I control showing up. I don't control how much weight I'm putting on. I'm yep. throwing up, right? Necessarily. Especially in the early um, stages. So, Exactly. Right. Because if, if I'm like, well, fuck, you know, I'm, I'm not putting up more weight. Okay. Well, what's going on? Am I lifting often enough? Am I trying to throw up weight rather than focusing on form? Am I eating enough of the right things to fuel strength gains? And, and I think that's develop? actually right. Am I, am I, sleeping yeah, are enough? you, are, and I think that's actually a great way to combat fear because it, you're taking this, um, you're breaking it down into these smaller steps. So you're, you can measure the progress. Basically you can be like, okay, well I'm just working on form. I, one of the things that I used to be really overweight. And one of the things that I created as a rule when I was first losing weight was you don't have to run on the treadmill, dude. All you got to do is stand there. You have to log five minutes a day standing on the treadmill. I don't think I ever actually did because you get bored after about 20 seconds of standing and then you'll just turn it on to walk. And it's like, okay, you don't have to run. You don't have to run. All you got to do is walk. And so you do that for five minutes, 10 minutes, all of a sudden you're like jogging for 20 minutes and it barely felt like work, you know, just set the bar as low as possible, as low as you're going to actually do it, whatever, whatever you're actually going to do, you know? Yeah, that's a super good point. But yeah, so with the intentional life design thing, we do core value, then we set goals, we identify obstacles. Then we recruit the leverage you have at your disposal. And then we just kind of put it all together in a step-by-step plan, right? Of like, I'm going to achieve this goal that is rooted in my value. And I'm going to overcome these obstacles with this leverage, right? Like we just kind of package it all up together. So that way you have a specific kind of step-by-step blueprint of how to succeed in a way that you want to succeed, right? Like you're not chasing what other people define successful. Like you're defining success, success on your own terms, right? So that's that's the a big thing with intentional life design is like it isn't what they call it, like mimetic theory or whatever where like you just kind of follow the crowd you want what other people want just because other people want it but you don't actually want it right um and that's the other big thing that maslow talked about was like and again I'm, i i know like some of the research has changed over the years but from my intro psychology you know understanding of it um he talked about how like less than 1% of people ever achieve self-actualization based on how he defined it. Right. And the part of the reason for that was most people are fine at the tier below that, which is the esteem tier, right? Which is by that point I make money. People like me, I get awards and trophies. I have fancy shit. I'm important. Most people are fine at that level. But if that life doesn't really resonate with you on a deep fundamental level, like if you're still daydreaming about a different version of your life that is achievable, then you haven't reached self-actualization, right? You haven't actualized your potential and what you are truly capable of achieving because you just, you kind of settled for, you know, the, the white picket fence type shit that isn't actually totally. what you but it gets you some esteem. It gets you some prestige. You can be in a neighborhood and invite everyone over for a cocktail party and everyone can celebrate how big your house is or whatever. And at the end of the day, you just wanted to be fishing, yeah. you know, like that's what you really wanted. Yep. And so how do people, um, 
Well, I guess I have a few questions. One is, I think we take for granted that people are so obsessed with performance and optimization and creating a better life. Why? Like, tell a nihilist, somebody who is truly nihilistic, why they should perform at a higher uh, degree or at a higher level. Yeah, so... I'm not going to tell anybody to do shit, right? It's your fucking life. You do whatever the fuck you want, right? However, for me, again, memento mori, right? Like, I have a finite amount of time. And what I have found is that when I help other people in a way that I'm uniquely positioned to help them, I get an insane degree of, of, you know, fulfillment and things from that, right? So, like, I write because I enjoy writing. But I also write because I know I can help other people through my writing, right? I coach because money's good. I like being able to work in my pajamas. But also, I love being able to see the progress that other be- other people are making that I played a small part in contributing to, right? So, and this is another part of like self-actualization, fulfillment, all sorts of shit is like, initially, people always ask me like, because they talk about the core value thing and all this other shit. They're like, okay, but isn't that inherently mm-hmm. selfish? Because mm-hmm. you're talking about your core value. If your core value still feels selfish, then it probably isn't your core value, right? And what I mean by that is like, so again, mine is freedom. It isn't just the freedom to travel whenever I want, to dress however I want, and to speak however I want. It's also helping other people achieve their version of freedom through something like intentional life design, right? Or through a specific training or a course that I've developed or whatever else, right? So yes, freedom is selfish for me, but the core values of freedom inherently involves helping other people in some capacity, right? You look at anybody who is truly, I don't don't use the term happy very often because like happiness is like an emotion, but rather than like a state of being long-term. However, you look at people who are happy, fulfilled, joyous, euphoric, whatever you want to call it, And damn near every one of them throughout history helped other people, served other people in some way, contributed positively toward making the world a better place, whether their family, their neighborhood, their area, the world, you know, overall, something. There was an element of service involved. And it's the same thing with self-actualization. It isn't just about optimizing yourself or reaching your potential so that you can, you know, fucking dunk a basketball or some shit. It is how... Are you best positioned to help other people that if you maximized your capabilities, that's you such a good answer to nihilism. Best. That's such a good answer. Right. So somebody is saying like, Oh, I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. There's no point in a thousand years. It won't matter anyway. And it's really such a selfish way to think you should be the best, most optimized version of yourself so that you're capable of expressing all of these benefits to the rest of your community and your family in the broader species and to um, hide your light under a bushel using Christian metaphor or whatever um, is to really rob the people around you of something. Well, and another thing with what most people kind of get a sour taste in their mouth when they talk about like performance and optimization is a lot of people think about it as trying to turn a human into a fucking mm-hmm. machine, right? Of like, you have to fire mm-hmm. on all cylinders all day, every day. 
Totally. Humans don't work like that. Very few things actually work like that, right? Like you, you have to pace yourself. You have to rest. You have to recover all this shit, right? But, and I, I don't often use, use those terms, you know, performance and, and optimization so much because most people think about it as like, I have to right. be in peak athletic right. performance 24-7. No. But if you look at it more from the perspective of how can you optimize yeah. for like freedom and fulfillment, right? Like how can you how can you build your yourself, your life, your habits, the things that you do and the way that you think around feeling more like yourself, feeling more like you are actually getting the most out of life, whatever that looks like. Like, so I use myself example. Like I, I don't have like, I don't wake up at fucking four o'clock in the morning and then (laughs) do 500 burpees or some shit. Yeah. yeah, I I fucking love Jocko. Right. But like, and, and don't roll like Jocko was like superhuman, right? I, I love Jocko and all of his shit. But like Jocko was one of the reasons that, that helped me get into the gym consistently because Jocko was like, you know, I woke up and I didn't feel like working out, but my feelings didn't get evoked. I'm here anyway. And I'm just like, yeah. I'm burning that in my fucking memory, right? So then I do. Like, fuck my feelings. It's I'm an example anyway, of somebody right? who's literally doing it. And it shows us that at least somebody can do it. It can be done. Exactly. And, but that's my thing is like, I'm not waking up at four or five, six o'clock in the morning and then doing all that. Cause Jocko's right. routine doesn't work for me right now. Don't get me wrong. Jocko does way more than me. Right. But that's part of it is I do not have a desire to optimize every hour of my waking day. Right. For me, what that looks like is I front load my day, meaning I do all of my cognitively demanding shit, mm-hmm. like creative you know, stuff, writing, coming up with, you know, course ideas or something. I do that first thing from the time I wake up to around noon or one. Okay. And then after that is when I I deal with meetings, when I do, you know, interviews, when I do other things like that, because that way I'm, I'm preserving when my brain is most is firing at, at maximum capacity pretty much. And then the rest of the day is, is just, you know, icing on the cake, right? That's what it looks like for me it looks very different for other people. You have to, and this is the thing, man, like you have to find what the fuck works for you when you're talking about quote unquote optimizing, right? It doesn't necessarily mean I wake up at 5 a.m., I go for a 30 minute walk, then I have an espresso. Nobody does that every single day. I don't believe that anyone does that every single day. And if, if you yeah. do, and if it I mean, some people do, I mean, because at the end of the day, we got that 4.30 post from uh, Instagram on Jocko. So like, some people just nail their habits. Um, there's this quote from Fight Club. Brad Pitt says it, I, I think, that all uh, self-improvement is masturbation. How do you respond? Because it was kind of connected to what you were saying about selfishness. I, yeah, so I was actually reading a Mark Manson article the other day that was a similar thing of like, basically, <clears throat> a lot of people get so caught up in self-improvement that they don't actually improve because they get so caught up in reading the next book on self-improvement or learning the next hack or the next this or that. And what Mark Manson said, was like, look, the fucking point of all this shit is to take what you, you need and throw the rest away and integrate it so much into your life that you don't think about it. He was like, you know, if, if you're trying to, you know, with self-improve, if you're trying to like eat healthy, you need to get to the point where you don't think about it as eating healthy. It's just, this is how I fucking live. There's no effort anymore. There, there's no chasing yeah. the next diet or the next thing. It's just like, this is just my life. Right. And that's a big thing. Like that I really like, man, is like, 
I, I see all the time, like I read 50 books this month. Mm -hmm. Nobody gives a single fuck. Like I would, I would much rather hear about the person who read one book and fucking killed it from, from what they read on that book rather than somebody who read 50 books, right? Like I do not give a shit what you know. I care what, yeah. How did what you know change you? Right. And yeah, and this whole obsession people have with like that. speed reading. Yeah, dude. Fuck the shit out of speed reading, right? I would rather read deeply than read quickly. And and don't like it takes me for fucking ever to read a book because like as I especially nonfiction, like as I read it, I'm taking notes, I'm trying to synthesize, I'm coming up with article ideas, like riffing off of something I read, you know, a passage I read or something. And then I try to deeply integrate every single thing that I learn in that book. Rather than just trying to, to have I a totally agree. I think the catalog really is right. more about prestige. You want to be able to like, you know, be like, I read a hundred books a year or whatever, but the most benefit is going to be, and this is why I like reading physical books actually versus audiobooks is for the simple fact, although I do love audiobooks because it's just like a podcast. You could just have it on in the background, but with physical books, you can take your time. So when you find a passage that is really emotionally striking or intellectually exciting, you can just take notes on that or even just have a reverie and think of it for a minute and let that thought pass through your mind a few times. And, and it's because you have this physical book where you could just pause reading. So super agree on that. Super agree on that. Yeah, I think, and, and I see this on, you know, cause I, I'm more active on Twitter, like social media wise. And I see it all the time. Like here are, you know, 15 lessons I learned from this. And like they do a thread like every day about some shit that they learn. And like, okay, you learned a lot and you're vomiting up all your lessons but what the it fuck is, are it you is. doing with it? It's about action. Right? Like so many people get get into this. And so yeah. how do people yeah. how do people take the action? One of the other things I like about Nietzsche that I brought into uh, a doc that I wanted to run by you. Here it is. I call an animal, a species, an individual corrupt when it loses its instincts, when it chooses, when it prefers what is harmful to it. And so his definition, I love this, his definition of a sick creature is a creature that chooses what is harmful to it. I have a dog. It's a husky. He's a two-year-old husky. He never chooses anything that hurts him ever. He's up way earlier than me, sitting next to the door, trying to get some sunlight. I put out his bowl of food. He never overeats once ever. He sees a person. He just wants to run up and play. You know, like he's not like, I'll smoke weed at 2 p.m. or whatever you know it's like well you could have had an extra five hours of the day well you know anyway, like people uh so so do you, first do you agree with that definition of sickness and then why do people choose what is harmful if you do agree assuming you do agree yeah so we are specifically not talking about delayed gratification and choosing suffering that is worthwhile correct we're we're, we're self sabotage self sabotage exactly why do people self sabotage that's the real question yeah 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 because the ability totally. to delay gratification is a whole separate thing right yep. <clears throat> which can lead to success so why do people that engage know in things that they know are destructive yeah so for me, it comes down to a couple of things. One, obviously these fears, right? Because so psychologists do what's called a functional analysis. Okay. All that means is we look at a behavior and we say, what function does it serve? What purpose does it have? Okay. Um, so for example, back when I did uh, therapy, I did a lot of like family therapy, parent training and shit. And one of the things that I would see is, you know, a mom and a daughter 
and the daughter will just start crying and just having like a fucking little fit in public, right? One of the people I worked with, the mother was like, yeah, she's doing this to get attention. So the mom half-assedly did a functional analysis, right? She said, my daughter is engaging in this behavior to fulfill this function. She's having, she's throwing a fit to get attention. She fucked up though, because that wasn't what was going on. The daughter specifically, you know, quote unquote, threw a fit when the mom would walk too fast Mm. and the daughter couldn't keep up. The daughter had severe anxiety Mm. around strangers. So the function of the girl throwing a fit was to say, hey, mom, I'm in distress right now, but do not have the language skills to adequately communicate my distress. That's childhood. Right? So here's what happened. Because mom had had made an incorrect assumption, she was like, oh, well, she's throwing a fit to get attention, so I'm going to ignore her and keep walking. (laughs) So that because you have an incorrect functional analysis – the, the conclusion you come to is super fucked up, and right? Now there's Which just trauma made and so once we identify, yes, exactly. yeah, and that's why you're here with me. Yeah. So, and so that's what was like, Hey, this is the actual, the true function of her behavior based on these, you know, my analysis here is another, and it probably works because she realized that she probably, right? you know, would have felt so bad to understand that her actions were like, you know, like hurting your child or whatever. Yeah, so, so that's a big thing with this functional analysis is what function does this behavior serve, right? And again, if you're deeply afraid of, of failing, then you may procrastinate because the longer you prolong doing the thing, the longer you can right. avoid risking failure. And risking right? it so in a true, concrete, the, undeniable way where, yeah, like there's no fantasy. Yeah. It's just like, nope, you failed. Yeah, and that is a terrible feeling. Exactly. Or, or, yeah, or that, you know, everybody knows that guy who's like, yeah, I could totally do that if I wanted. I yeah, I had that idea back in the day, and then so-and-so stole it. Yeah. Nobody stole your fucking yeah. idea. Nobody even knows you exist. And, okay, you could have done it, but you didn't. Fucking why? Nobody cares what you could have done. Nobody gives a and I've been, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot do. that right. everyone now but, has read all the self-help books. Every idea is on YouTube. We need to understand how to make these changes, not even generally like person at the individual level. What are the, what is the how, not the what maybe you still need to figure out. Maybe the how comes with the why. I don't know. Well, well like I'm saying, I think that everyone yeah. knows what to do. You should wake up early. You should eat healthy. You should spend your day building your business and improving your relationships, blah, blah, blah. We all know, but how do people actually do it? Like the rock is out there working out every day. I don't care what he injects his body with. That's hard work. That is difficult. I've tried to do that. It's very difficult, but he literally does it. So what is the difference? How do some people maintain that? And some people don't maintain it. Yeah. So again, part of it is this fear that people yeah, that never really dive into. Like, what am I actually afraid of? Right. So, perfectionism. Yeah. So and, and perfectionism. I hear that all the time. Like, oh, I'm a pe- perfectionist. No, you're fucking not. Everybody has a high bar for quality. Everybody has high expectations for themselves on some level. Right. The difference is you are using that as yeah. an excuse yeah. to never finish the thing you start. Right. Yeah. You're not a perfectionist. You're fucking afraid. Okay. 
Because you can put out something and then yeah. and improve yeah. it after you put it out. You can always iterate, right? Having this iterative mindset rather than expecting yeah. perfection right out the gate, right? The other thing, other than these fears that I see trips up a lot of people, is their, their personal narrative, right? Your personal narrative is the stories you tell yourself about yourself, your potential, and the world around you, right? So if you tell yourself that other people can't be trusted, the world is out to get you, or people like you can't succeed, that kind of thing, or you know, you're a piece of shit. Well, if you believe that, then you are going to gravitate toward behaviors or environments that reinforce that belief, yeah, right? Right. So if you believe that you are a failure, you will, and I, I'm not, not the technical term, like you will like unconsciously or subconsciously engage in things that you know you will fail at so that then you fail, which reinforces your belief that you're a failure, right? Or you will do something that you could do, but you intentionally sabotage so that you fail and then tell yourself, oh, see, I'm a failure. Nothing I do ever works out, right? So you have to be super mindful of the stories you tell yourself about yourself because everything that you do stems from the yeah. thoughts you have, right? <clears throat> because if I don't believe I'm capable, then I don't try. And then I see that I didn't achieve anything, which reinforces the fact that I'm, a, I'm you know, I'm incapable, right? But the reverse is also true. If I believe I am capable, well, now with that belief, I go out and I try. And even if I fuck up, I still tell myself that I'm capable of improving. So then I keep going and eventually, and you're attacking it you from eventually it's, succeed on some level. It's the, right? it's the mindset. Like it's the mindset, mindset that matters. And if you're going in with a mindset that's like, I'm afraid, I'm procrastinating, I'm this is my thing, I always wait to the whatever, then uh, you're just, you're leaving stuff, you're leaving a lot on the table. And uh, the better mindset is to come in and just say, I have a growth yeah. mindset. Whatever I've lost is a lesson and I am here to learn and grow and be a better version of myself. Well, even like you, right? So like, you know, you look like you're, you're a pretty fit dude. You said you used to be, you know, overweight and now you, oh, know, you clearly don't look overweight. So think about just like your personal narrative today versus when you were overweight and, and probably didn't have the same habits you do now health wise, right? Like how did, what are the, yep. the, the differences between? Yeah. I mean the differences. Oh yeah. No, uh, the difference question, in like the mindset question. from when I was overweight. Well, I mean, I think it had a lot to do with not understanding the benefits of health. And there was certainly a lot of fear in terms of like, it's scary to go to a gym or, or to do things that I don't know or learn a new skill. But I think a lot of what motivated uh, me to change was just understanding the benefits. It was almost like being drawn towards something rather than running away from something. Um. A lot of things that, that trip people up, especially like with going to the gym is like that. They, they tell themselves it's scary to go to the gym. No. You probably don't tell yourself that anymore. Or they say, working out is too complicated. I don't know how to work the machines, right? It's going to be really hard for me to lose weight. I don't know what I'm doing. Versus now, you probably say, I relatively know what I'm doing. It isn't scary. 
I can change my body composition. Yeah, it's a 180 because you've learned. It's a 180. You've actually learned. And it's these things become your habits. Um, One of the things that I like that you said was that you can have habits become autonomous or something like that, where if you do something again and again and again and again, it gets easier over time. And I think that's just such a, the momentum in that is just works for you or against you. Like if you're waking up and you're doing the right thing every morning, all of a sudden you have this tailwind and that's driving your whole life forward. But if right before you go to bed, you do two shots of whiskey, exact opposite. You have this headwind and, and now these things are slowing you down. And so these patterns are hard to break and hard to set. Yeah, what, yeah, one of the things that I talk a lot about is yeah. whatever you consistently do, you get better at, for better or worse, right? Like if you consistently eat well, you get better at eating well. If you consistently worry, right. you get really good at worrying, right? Like I know people who are <laughs> Olympic level worriers because that's all they do. If you spent 20 years of your life worrying hey, and catastrophizing and shit, and then one day go to it, you're a fucking pro, right? But then one day you you read this book about medicate or uh, meditation or you watch a fucking TED Talk. You're like, oh, I'm going to do deep breathing now. And then you try it for five minutes. You're like, I fucking suck at this. No shit. You're comparing 20 years worth yes. of worrying to five minutes worth of relaxation. Of course you fucking And the reps are 20 it. years. It's however long months. you did the bad behavior. And, and that's the thing, man, is like you, you, anytime you start a new thing, you have to recognize that you've, it isn't that you haven't practiced this new thing. You've practiced the opposite for a lot longer. So it will take time. It may not take the same amount of time, right? But it will take time to, uh, to develop this new habit. Well, we're about at time. Um, what is the, what are the takeaways here? What are people like, what do you feel like people aren't doing in their lives that uh, your courses and kind of like your framework for thinking can help with? Yeah, you got to figure out what the fuck you want out of life, right? Like, what does fulfillment look like for you, right? You don't have to read my shit or take my courses or, you know, hire me as a coach. You can do what the fuck you want, right? But that is specifically what I do is I help people get hyper clear on what they actually want identify what's standing in their way and develop a plan to actually make it a reality, right? Again, whatever that is for you, right? But you have to get hyper clear on what you actually, what you want, not what other people want, not what other people tell you you should want, what the fuck you actually want from yourself in this one life that you get. I love that, man. That's one takeaway. Yeah. The second is, thank you. The second is get into the habit of asking yourself, how might this be related to a fear? How might this be rooted in a fear? Okay. So anytime you're taking on too much or you keep missing a deadline or you're overcomplicating something, ask yourself how, cause it may not be, but ask yourself, how might this be related to a fear? What am I afraid of and how can I learn to push past that fear or at least deconstruct it enough to so so determine what it is that you're really after and then what are the fears that are holding you back from getting there and memento is mori is that how you say memento mori that that awareness of death is one tool it's the one arrow in your quiver or one tool in your tool chest to uh make that happen 
Um, Corey, I've loved this discussion. I feel like we could talk for hours. There's a lot more that I'd like to talk about maybe sometime in the future, but for now, everyone should go to Corey Wilkes, uh, PSYD.com. And can they follow you, find you on Twitter and Instagram through that same handle? Same. Well, this was Twitter's such a fun thing, discussion Corey, and yep. I love talking to you. Thanks, Corey. See ya. Likewise, man. Take it easy.